Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 7 this evening. We continue now in this second of a series of sermons that Moses has been giving to the children of Israel on the border of the promised land. Most of them, as we said, carry that very one direct theme of obedience. Moses now continuing on here in the seventh chapter, right where we left it off, saying to the children of Israel, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Notice seven nations and take note, God's not hiding the reality. God says seven nations greater and mightier than you. So again, as God refers to these people that they would dispossess from the land, that they would conquer, that they would overcome, that would be their enemies, that they would have to fight conflicts against, uh, God does not cover up the reality that it seems numerically, perhaps militarily, that these nations, these people groups, were actually mightier and greater than the Israelites. But yet the reality, as we're going to see multiple times throughout this chapter God is going to say but your God is the great and awesome God who is among you and so it did not matter how great these people were militarily what their strength was in comparison to the children of Israel the reality that Israel had the presence of God with them and the power of God with them always became the determining factor and that continued to be the case all throughout the history of the nation of Israel their victory or their defeat their success or their failure was always directly dependent upon their relationship to God and their dependence upon God. That was always the very determining factor in their lives. As you get into the book of Joshua, you see that very reality unfold as they start to make conquests and begin to fight some of the battles in the land. So the Lord is saying to them, not if you overcome these people who are greater and mightier than you, because you know you are outnumbered and they seem a little stronger. And you know if you manage to pull it off, God doesn't say that. God says, when you are brought into the land again because he was bringing them in when you cast them out God gives them again that directive as he has many times already thus far again he's reiterating things they already know he's reinforcing the same truths and uh, commandments that have already been given because they needed reminders this next generation as we all need continuous reminders he says when you enter in he says, verse 2, And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, notice, you shall conquer and utterly destroy them. Again, that word destroy there literally is a term that means to be devoted over to destruction. And again, God here, as we've said before, important to remember as we look at this, he's not just kicking innocent people out of a land and out of their territory just so he has a piece of real estate to bless his own children with. That's not what's going on here. It's not as if God is saying, well, you know, I want to bless you and you're my chosen people and, and I want to give you something. And since I own all of creation, I just, yeah, I'll just take those people real estate from them and I'll just kick them out. They can go start over. That's not what's happening at all here because God's going to say later on to Israel, if you repeat their same sins and you enter into the same idolatry and you disobey me and turn your back on me and enter into gross immoral behavior, God says, uh, I show no partiality. I'll do the same to you. 
I'll drive you out of the land as well. What God is doing with the nation of Israel here, as we said before, is Israel's being used by God as his divine instrument to execute divine judgment upon these people who had become grossly immoral. Again, if you look up the historical practices of the people of this Canaanite territory at that time, you know, they were involved in child sacrifice, gross immoral behaviors, the, the things that they did as a part of their worship system. And again, from, from the book of Genesis onward there, God gave a prophecy hundreds of years ago saying that he would allow a, a, you know, numerous centuries to pass that the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its full. And God waited hundreds of years allowing these people an opportunity, but as they continue to progress more debased, more immoral, more, you know, in a sense, wicked, after hundreds and hundreds of years, God measures time morally. And there came a time when these nations deserve the judgment of God and as the same way that any nation deserves at times the judgment of God. And look, uh, you can draw parallels. God shows no favoritism. God does not show partiality. And these people ultimately got to a point where there was no other recourse than if God were to be just, then for God to judge them. And so God is now using militarily the human instrument as his divine vessel, the nation of Israel, to conquer these people, to drive them out militarily. Uh, and they were, as God says here, to completely conquer and remove their existence from that territory and then possess and take that land as God was giving it to them instead and allowing them to then occupy that area which would become their promised land that God gave to them by divine decree he says to them going on verse 2 and notice and you shall make God says no covenant with them so they weren't to make agreements they weren't to enter into any alliances or anything of that sort they a covenant no, no make no deals with them militarily or economically or socially God says you'll make no covenant with them or show mercy to them God wanted them to walk in complete obedience to completely eradicate them from the land and to conquer and to take over that territory and again you know as we talked before many of these things you know spiritually parallel the, the the christian life and again we don't inherit a land we don't have a promised land we inherit a promised life a life in the spirit which has enemies that we need to overcome that we need to eradicate you know areas of our flesh we'll talk more about this uh, later on in the chapter but again in the same way with the spiritual enemies our flesh the weaknesses of our sin nature you know we can't make covenants and alliances we can't bargain with our flesh the Bible tells us spiritually to do one thing with the flesh, the old sin nature, crucify it, put it to death. You can't flirt with the flesh. You can't make an agreement with, well, I'll just, I can keep this one little area of the flesh because, you know, that's just my area of weakness. And sometimes spiritually, Christians will begin to develop that mentality as if somehow, you know, God will give other people victory over that. But God just knows this is my area of weakness. Listen, don't buy into that lie. God says, don't make a covenant. Don't make an agreement to settle for anything less than utter and complete victory over any area of your flesh. God wants to give that victory and God is able to give that victory to you even as he is to any other Christian. So be cautious of that type of mentality. Verse 3, he then instructs them going onward, nor shall you make marriages. 
with them. So they weren't to intermarry with the people of the land. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will, notice, here's the reason why, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And so the anger of the Lord, as I just said a moment ago, look what God says. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you. In other words, God's saying, if you do this, I'll treat you the same way I would any other people if you engage and begin to follow their practices and ways as the result of intermarriage. Now, again, keep in mind as you look at these verses here in that ancient culture among the Jewish people in that day, parental involvement in the decision of marriage relationships was in many ways to a much higher degree exercised certainly than it is today in our Western culture or in a modern day of you know where we live in today. Uh, it, many marriages were arranged. It was very much the, the prerogative and the right of a parent to decide who their son would marry, who their daughter would marry. So God gives, therefore, this instruction to the parents here, the, the onus or the you know, instruction is put upon them because that was the way, in many ways, they function culturally. I, I'll just say having three daughters, I don't think it's a very bad idea. I like the concept. And quite honestly, you know, I think in a good, healthy relationship between parents and children, this is a very wise thing. It's a very wise thing. You know, th this, after making the eternal decision of what's going to happen with your soul in regards to relationship with God, this is the second most important decision any human being can ever make. And oftentimes it's being made by people at a stage of their life where there's still a level of immaturity, of naivety, of you know what, what it means to be in a marriage, to, to engage in that commitment, what's the right type of person and the criteria to select them to be able to perhaps you know discern who is a right quality person to enter into that type of a long-term commitment and relationship. And, and I think it's a very beautiful thing if, again, if not in a regulated way, but in a relational way, there is a good relationship between parents and children in such a way whereby it's, you know, mom, dad, what do you think of this guy? What do you think? Of, do I have your, we would say, do I have your blessing? I, th I think it's a wonderful thing. I think it's very wise, someone who's certainly, you know, taking that into consideration. I think it's a safeguard and it's a beautiful thing. But in this culture, it was exercised in many ways and controlled by the parents. So here God says, look, do not intermarry with the people of the land. He says, do not give your daughter to their son and do not take their daughters for your son for they will turn your, notice, turn your children away from following me. Now, now please pay attention here. This is not a prohibition against interracial marriage. That's not what this is. This is a prohibition against what we might say instead, maybe interfaith marriage, marrying someone, entering into that type of a covenant and, and commitment with someone who does not share the same spiritual convictions, beliefs and value system that you do. That's very evident because notice what's God's concern. Verse four, he says, for they will turn your sons away from following me. It will, it will ruin their commitment to me. It will ruin their relationship with me. The way in which they now believe will be distorted and will be defiled if they, in a sense, become unequally yoked 
in a marriage relationship with someone who does not share the same spiritual belief and value system as they do. So again, God's prohibiting here not interracial marriage, not you know two ethnicities being able to join in marriage, but this is against interfaith marriage because of the destructive nature God knows it will have upon someone's spiritual condition. Again, we read in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Again, why? Because the unbeliever, the pagan person who's not a believer, will draw a person away from their commitment to God. And this is what God is concerned about here, that people will be turned away. And again, I think it is certainly a biblical scriptural thing to say that a believer, a Christian, should not marry and enter into a marriage relationship with a non-Christian person. A believer should not marry a non-believer. That is being unequally yoked. And again, if you're new to the concept, or what's this idea of being yoked? Well, in, in that day when they would farm, a farmer would, would yoke two animals together in partnership to plow his field. And basically there was a wooden beam with two openings for the necks of two animals. And a wise farmer would select two animals not only that were the same species so that they could work together in harmony and partnership productively rather than counterproductively not only just the same species but typically he would also pay attention to are they about the same size do they have the same temperament do they have the same strength level because that farmer wanted to ensure that they were going to head in the same direction that they were going to head at the same pace, that they were going to function together, again, cooperatively, because if you had one animal, for example, that was a very stubborn animal, and you had another animal that was a very aggressive, forward-going animal, one animal is going to be pulling forward, the other is going to sit back on its hind legs, and guess what's going to happen? That animal that's pulling forward is the one that's going to break its neck because of the dead weight of the animal that does not want to go in the right direction that it's supposed to go. And of course, this whole thing becomes an analogy and a picture of how the Bible says that we can be unequally yoked with someone who is an unbeliever. I don't think it's wise business-wise. I don't think it's wise in certain you know, close partnerships. We need to be careful. It doesn't tell us to completely disconnect from the world and not work together with the world. But in close partnerships whether again maybe be a entering into a business relationship but certainly from a marital perspective the bible cautions and prohibits us from doing it listen it does not work now if you're already married to someone who is an unbeliever then god says to you you need to stay in that commitment and you need to honor that commitment you need to pray and you may be first corinthians 7 says the only possible means whereby that person ends up coming to christ and salvation and so if you're already in that situation, whether you got saved after the marriage relationship and so now you're married to an unbeliever or whether you entered into that knowingly and married someone who was an unbeliever <clears throat> as a Christian, well, now you need to honor that marriage commitment and you need to honor that marriage covenant. But if you're still single this evening and you have not entered in that relationship yet, listen, the Bible says to you, do not marry an unbeliever. This whole crazy concept of missionary dating doesn't work. It does not work. It ruins missionaries in the dating process. 
because that's what happens. And if you are willing to compromise in the midst of a dating relationship to enter into that type of a close romantic relationship with someone who in no way, in a sense, qualifies to be a possible candidate to marry, listen, you're already indicating that you're willing to compromise. And you're just going to continue to compromise. And they initially, in the midst of the dating, oh yeah, you can go to. Ch- I'll go to church with you. I'll go to your church with you. I'll, you know. But listen, over time, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So the Bible says, look, be wise in this area. Know that that will happen. That a person will turn a person away from following the Lord. That's why we're not to be interracial, excuse me, inter, you know, faith married in that way. And here God gives a very strong precaution to the children of Israel. And of course, the same principle and concept applies for us spiritually as well. So be cautious. Do not make this mistake. It will lead to regret, deep regret. And I'd be happy to supply you a few people who could verify for you the challenges that it has brought into their life. Don't enter into that mistake. And if you know someone who's headed down that road, then do whatever you can before they make that commitment to pray for them, to talk to them, to explain to them the danger of that type of a thing. So the first thing you always want to verify if you're a single person is where are they at spiritually? Not are they hot? Not are they, you know, somebody that you can really have, you know, where are they at spiritually? That should be the number one criteria before you even begin to let your heart get engaged and to begin to move forward. Here, God makes a very strong caution against that. Verse 5, he says, But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images. You get the idea? They have a lot of false worship going on. Burn their carved images with fire. So here in verse 5, again, God encourages them to basically eradicate any potential means to enter into idolatry and the worship system of the false practices of religion that these people were involved in in the land. And again, so this was to be done here destroying their altars, breaking down the pillars, cutting down the wooden images, burning the carved images. You know, what do we got to do all that for? I mean, the whole process, can't we just you know, cast it aside over here? Well, listen, God knows human nature and he knows the weakness of our flesh and the potential that people have. So he tells Israel, look, remove any temptation, remove any opportunity possible that could potentially be left in your midst to become involved in evil ways. It's a safeguard. So God says, just cut the bridge off. Do anything you possibly can. Cut off access to anything, any altar, any image, any pillar, anything you can bow down to or begin to get caught up into. He says, cut off access so that you can't head down wrong roads spiritually. So you can't head down wrong roads morally. And I think that's very wise in our own lives. Sometimes just being very practical is a very sensible thing to do to help ourselves spiritually so that we don't end up getting engaged and involved in habits or practices or things that are going to ruin us or harm us spiritually in our relationship with the Lord or get us involved in immoral things. Look, be practical. Just cut things out of your life. Burn the bridges to them. Don't even give yourself the opportunity because if you make the avenue eventually, you're going to take a trip down the road. It it just happens. 
So the better thing to do is just be proactive and remove those opportunities. You may know what they are in your life, so be wise in relation to those things. Don't give yourself those opportunities. Verse 6, he says, here's the reason why. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. So God tells Israel the reason why I want you to do these things, to eradicate the people from the land, to not make covenants with them, to not intermarry with them, to not you know, leave around their sacred pillars and their altars and these things, but to eliminate these things, God says, is because you're a holy people. Again, the word holy means set apart, sanctified, unique the ideas this is the concept of how you know god is holy that's the idea is god's separate there's nothing else like god there's no one else like god he is holy so when the bible says to us be ye holy as i am holy that's the idea god chooses us out of the world god chose the nation of israel as his chosen people it says here he chose them as a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth and he says you are holy and you're to be for the Lord, he says, you are chosen to be a people for himself. God, the idea here is God's trying to remind them of this reality that their lives were purposely selected to be set apart for God, for his purposes. God said, I chose you, I selected you to be set apart for me. You belong to me now. The people of Israel were, were being reminded and they were to recognize and remember that their lives had importance to God. They represented God and they were to live differently. They were to be uniquely different than others because God had chosen them. And of course, as we look at this, not in the sense as Israel nationally, but Peter says in First uh, Peter writing his first letter that you and I as Christians are a royal priesthood, a, a chosen generation called by God to declare his praises and to live for the Lord. And in the same way, we spiritually are a spiritual generation as Christians. We're God. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you that you might go and bear fruit. So again, the Lord has chosen us for himself. We're to be holy, to be different. That's why we're not to intermingle and get caught into the ways and the practices of the world because we're to be a, a special set apart people, not arrogantly, not again, not isolation. The idea of, of Christian separation is, you know, the ability to, you know, interact with the world and have contact with the world, but not be contaminated by the world and we have to remember that it's not isolation sometimes christians get that wrong we want to create our little christian bubble and we have our christian home and our christian music and our christian friends and our christian circles and our christian movies and our christian everything and, and we we have no connection to the world and and that's not the heart of god we're to be salt and light in the world jesus interacted with worldly people but jesus had contact with pagans and prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners he had direct contact with them but he never became contaminated by them instead his contact with them contributed good and godly things in their lives and that's to be our role yes we're chosen we're for the lord we're to be different and set apart in the way that we live and we interact and have contact in business and in our schools and in our neighborhoods and our families with unbelievers 
but we don't allow ourselves to be contaminated by them. We hold our ground spiritually. We live differently and we represent the Lord and try and influence them towards the things of God. He says, verse 7, notice, for the Lord did not, this is beautiful, set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For he says, you, quite honestly, were the least of all the peoples, he tells the Jews. But because the Lord loves you. So take notice of this here, verse 7 and 8. God's love for Israel is declared right here. He says, look, did you ever stop to think, he asked the Jews here, did you ever stop to think, why does God love you? Does God love you because of some intrinsic worth, something that was in them that was special? They were just, you know, among all the people groups on the earth at that time, they just were such a numeric people. Their population was so large and they had so many smart people and talented people and wealthy people. And God said, wow, now that is a people group on the planet that has incredible potential. Boy, I'm really attracted to them. I think I'm going to fall in love with them and make them my chosen special people. The Bible says here, the Holy Spirit directing Moses' speech, quite honestly, it was the exact opposite. It says here, the Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other people. In fact, he says you were the least of all the peoples. It was the exact opposite. Again, he says, do you want to know why God loves you? The answer is in verse 8, because. Because he loves you. That's why. What God's trying to emphasize to Israel here at this point, the reason God loves you is because God is loving and he made a decision to choose to love you. He's trying to say to the Jews here, to Israel, God loves you without a cause. He loves you for no specific reason, no, again, special significance or superior value that he finds within you that makes you attractive. God doesn't need a reason to love God doesn't need a cause to love people. Now, that's hard for us to grasp mentally because that's how we, quite honestly, function humanly. It's our human nature, right? I guarantee, to some extent, the person that you're married to or you got married to, what happened was you were attracted to them whether it was physical attraction or their personality or something about them. We like the same bubble gum. You know, just what it just were other. We'd like to take walks together. There was something about them that something in them attracted you to them, their personality. But again, it was something, it was a cause or a reason that made you fall in love with them or begin to feel love. That's not how God functions. God is loving, unconditional, in his ways and therefore God doesn't need a reason to love God didn't love the Jews and set his love upon the Jews because of something that was special about them the reason God loved them is because God loved them he chose to love them because he's a loving God and he loves as a choice unconditionally does not need cause or condition now how freeing is that how liberating and quite honestly how humbling is that that it's not based of anything at all of a person's merit or worth. There doesn't need to be anything attractive. And as much as it breaks some of our little prideful bubbles, there is nothing attractive. There's nothing within me. There's nothing within you that merits God's love. But listen, that's liberating. So you don't have to try and keep God loving you. 
You don't have to keep thinking that your performance being a good boy this week, better than last week, makes God love you a little more. Or now makes God love you because he's been so angry with you because of how much of a failure you've been recently. Listen, God loves you with a love like a parent towards a child. Again, your children may disappoint you. They may, but again, that love, it, it remains there when they're doing well and you're proud of them or when they break your heart and they make mistakes. And again, we're imperfect human parents. God is a perfect heavenly father, pure in all his ways. Why does God love you? And he does love you. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And you can't change that. You cannot alter that. You don't deserve it. You don't merit it. And That's liberating. It's something that takes getting a little used to. And it even takes faith to believe it. To accept it. It is truly something that requires faith to accept that kind of love. But boy, that is an amazing love. That's why we love him because he first loved us. That's why the Bible says, 1 John chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we would be called children of God. The idea there is what manner of love, what strange, the idea is literally what foreign, unusual love. The term literally means out of this world. It's something that's not like what's in this world. It's a love that supersedes anything we've ever come to understand. So just so beautiful. The Lord didn't set his love on you because of what you have to offer. But verse 8, because the Lord loves you. And because he would keep, verse 8, the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, he says, verse 9, remembering what God had done for them, Know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 10, and he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. So notice verse 8 and 9 and 10 here really testify in a lot of ways of just the loyalty and the faithfulness of God. He reminds them there in verse 8 of how the Lord kept his oath, which he had sworn to their fathers, how he brought them with a mighty hand out of Egypt, redeeming them. And he says, therefore, in light of his past faithfulness, he says, know that in the same way, your God, he says, he's the faithful God. He's loyal, he's committed, he's faithful to always remain who he is, to always keep his word and to keep his promises. And what's referenced there in verse 9 and 10 are really just restatements or reiterations of things that God has already said to Israel many times before, how he would relate to those who love him and how he would not let people escape who hate him and dishonor him and rebel against him, but that he would be faithful to deal with people in their rebellion and their hard-heartedness and disobedience towards him as well. So here he's trying to emphasize this reality that God keeps his promises. He doesn't change. And that works both in positive ways and in negative ways. It works in positive ways that he is the faithful God who keeps his covenant and mercy towards those who love him and keep his commandments. So again, God is going to keep his commitments to us. God is going to keep his promises to us as he did to the nation of Israel because he is the faithful God. God, the faithful God, 
You know, for some of you this evening, that's something that you need to be reminded of. Listen, he's the faithful God. Maybe you didn't have a faithful father. Maybe you didn't have a faithful family. Maybe you didn't have a faithful spouse. Maybe you've never experienced the reality of a faithful person. Listen, don't carry that over and put that same attribute on God. He's the faithful God. And He will always be faithful. The Bible says great is His faithfulness. And He will be faithful to you and every promise and every commitment and every way He will never let you down. He is the one person who will always remain committed. The Bible even says that even when we are faithless, He remains faithful because He can't deny Himself. So remember that. Rely upon His faithfulness that He is the faithful God. But realize His faithfulness doesn't just work in the positive, beneficial way. It also works in a negative way as well because verse 10 says, because He's the faithful God, He will repay those who hate Him, those who rebel against Him. And interesting, notice the emphasis there. He'll repay Him, it says, it says multiple times, to His face. I mean, it's like God's, you know, God's not afraid to square up with a human being. <laughs> It says he'll repay him to his face. You know, we say things like, you know, one, one day you're going to have to face your maker. Well, that's true. God's saying, yeah, that's right. It's not just going to be some collective thing. One day you're going to have to face your maker. Someone who hates God and rebels against God and thinks somehow they're going to negotiate their way. And, look, one day God says, no, you're going to have to face me. You're going to face me as your creator. And you're going to give answer for your animosity towards me, your hatred towards me, your anger towards me. And God says he will repay. So again, God's faithfulness works in both ways because God is an impartial God that remains consistent to who he always is in his loyal ways. Verse 11, Therefore you shall keep the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which I command you today, notice, to observe them. Again, obedience, keeping things, observing things. Why do we want to do that? Verse 12, he says to the Jews, this is why they should keep and observe his commandments. Look at the covenant blessing he gave to the nation of Israel. Then it shall come to pass because you listen to these judgments and keep them and do them, listening and obeying, if Israel would obey God's law, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and mercy which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. Again, these are reiterations of promises God has already given to Israel. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land so they would have productive crops in their harvest, your grain and your new wine and your oil. That is, they would be economically successful. They would experience prosperity in that which they farmed and their uh, things that they did to earn a living for themselves. The increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock in the land which he swore to your fathers to give you. Verse 14, God says to them, you shall be blessed above all peoples. The idea is that they would experience a prosperity and a success and a blessing above other nations around them. The favor of God would be evident upon them in their success and their prosperity. Therefore, 
He says, there shall not be a male or female barren among you or your livestock. So they wouldn't have miscarrying wombs among their animals. They wouldn't have problems with animals reproducing and having you know, great flocks and herds. Verse 15, and the Lord will take away from you all sicknesses and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt, which you have known but will lay them on those who hate you. So God promised health to them. Many of the diseases and the afflictions that they saw in Egypt where they had come from. God says, you won't experience those diseases and afflictions he was telling the Jews. And keep in mind, part of this was directly in relationship to, again, if we go back up to verse 11 and 12 there, where God's talking about keeping his commandments, his statutes. We've studied many of these things already. Think of how with the nation of Israel, as God gave to them the law, how God gave them very wise hygiene practices, ways to maintain their diet and their health, certain social practices, whether it was in sexual relations or the way they would handle their affairs with bodily fluids and all types of things. God gave to them a lot of very wonderful instructions. Why? To give to them the ability to be a very healthy, hygienic people in their diet and their hygiene practices to avoid a lot of the sicknesses and diseases that took place in Egypt and other cultures who did not follow a lot of those same practices and principles that God had given to them. So as they would simply obey the word of God, as well as I think God just, you know, at times being gracious, just supernaturally giving to them health and keeping from them suffering and sicknesses. Certainly, it was a dual thing here. But again, God speaking in these verses here to Israel of how he would bless and reward them with good benefits of living obedient lives to him and to his word. He would, in essence, you know, allow them to experience better health. They would experience blessing and prosperity, success economically. They would be a more productive people than other nations. They would experience success and favor that surpassed other people around them because God's favor and blessing would be upon them because of the way they related to God as a nation. And again, certainly we aren't promised these same covenant things. The Bible doesn't promise to us that there'll be absolutely no sickness as a Christian and so forth. But, but the principles in and of themselves so hold true. God blesses any people, God blesses any nation that honors him and honors his word. And if we live according to the word of God in the ways and practices that God has outlined for us in scripture and we follow many of the principles God has given to us in his word, certainly we are going to experience the benefits of that. Health, avoidance of sexually transmitted diseases and problems and things that deteriorate cultures and ruin nations and economies. God is able to bless when we do things his way. And in the same way, when we disregard that, God can retract that blessing in many ways by just allowing the natural curse of those things to come upon us as a people group. So here God gives to them this incredible assurance of the blessing that he wanted to pour upon them. Verse 16, he says, And you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eyes shall have no pity on them, again God says, nor shall you serve their gods. Why? Look at it again, verse 16. For that will be a snare to you. And if you should say in your heart, verse 17, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? God says, you shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember well 
what the Lord your God did in the past, notice, to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials which your eyes saw and the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. So God says to them here, listen, when your natural eye sees the reality of these people who he said earlier in their chapter, what are greater and mightier than you? And fear begins to grip your heart, as sometimes it does when we see things with a natural perspective. The Lord says, verse 18 to them, you shall not be afraid, but instead, how are they to overcome fear? God says, remember what I've done for you. Remember the power I showed in Egypt. He says, think back, remember what the Lord your God did, verse 18, to Pharaoh and to Egypt. Remember how with great trials and the things that there were signs and wonders and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm of the Lord your God. And he says, verse 19 there, so shall. In other words, in the same way God once did it, he says, God will do it again because he's the faithful God. And he did it in the past. He showed his power and he gave you victory and he helped you overcome your great fears and the things that intimidated you and were terrifying you. And there are times in our lives in the same way that we experience things that make us afraid. And we would say, just like the nation of Israel, Lord, how? How am I going to deal with this? How am I going to overcome this? How, how am I going to root this out of my life? It, it just this, this, this seems too big for me. I just It just seems that there's no way. And, and he says, look, stop trying to figure it out rationally. Instead, he says, remember by faith what God has already done. Remember God's prior faithfulness, his power at other times and lean on that because he says the outstretched arm of the Lord that once was shown to you. He says, look, God's about to roll up his sleeves once again and the outstretched arm of the Lord and the mighty hand of God shall do the same to the thing and the people, whatever it is that you are currently afraid of right now. Look what he says to them in verse 20 there. Moreover, he says, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until those who are left hide themselves from you are destroyed. So again, is God limited? God says, I'll stir up a hornet's nest if I need to. I mean, you're talking about God just getting bare bones practical there. God says, look, whatever it takes. I'm the creator of the heavens and the earth. God says, if I want to use something like an insignificant creature, like a little hornet to drive people. Look, you ever got, last summer I was mowing the lawn and I went over top of uh, it was either a hornets or a bees. I don't know. All I know is it hurt and I ran because I got bit about three times and I had on long pants and everything. And look, and a few hornets had me running halfway down the block screaming and yelling. My wife thought that I got caught up in the lawnmower. I was crying so loud. She came around and said, oh my goodness. But, uh, so God says, look, I'll use whatever I got to use. And that's a great encouragement because the reality is, is a lot of times again, we want to try and think it out logically, rationally. And God says, look, I, I'm the creator of the heavens and the earth. And, and whether God wants to use something grandiose, God is not limited in his ways. God is more than able to do whatever he needs to do, whether it's, you know, touching the finite mind of a little tiny hornet to make it do something to cooperate. God can cause anything, everything, all things, whatever it requires to cooperate, to bring about his will, his help, his victory, 
his accomplishment of what he wants to do for you in your life. And, and that's an incredible thing to be able to realize that our God has that authority over all things. And here God, again, assuring them, he says, look, the Lord your God, he'll send the hornet among these people, whoever left to drive them out. Verse 21, he says, and you shall not be terrified of them for the Lord your God. Look again at the language. Just let it settle in. The great and awesome God is among you. Why should we not be afraid for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God is among you? Because that's who's with you. It's the presence of the one who is with you that diminishes fear when you come into that reality. And let me just say, verse 21, in fact, I have written in my Bible here, not a promise, a reality. That's not a promise. Oh, what a great promise. That's not a promise. That's a reality. The Lord is great, the Lord is awesome, and he's among you. He's with you. Jesus said, lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. The great, listen, if the great and awesome God was among Israel by his presence in that day and age nationally, how much more is that true for you and I on this side of the cross and the resurrection where the Bible says that Christ indwells us? The very spirit of this God resides inside of you as a Christian. He's not only among you, he's within you, which means he's involved in everything that goes on in your life. And his great and awesome presence and the power of that is the very thing that assures us to diminish our fears, whatever you may be facing tonight that seems overwhelming or intimidating or terrifying. He says, verse 22, let's finish up the chapter together. He says, and the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you Little by little, you'll be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will again deliver them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. And he will deliver their kings. Notice who's doing this. He will deliver their kings into your hand. You will destroy their name from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you've destroyed them. You shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. Again, he says, you shall not covet the silver or gold that is in them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared, entangled by it, for it's an abomination to the Lord your God. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. Let me draw your attention, if I could, just to verse 22 and 23 before we wrap up this evening. And, and keep your attention here with me, because this is an incredible thing that God tells Israel, which I think has great application to us. He says to them, when they go in to conquer the land full of enemies... God says to them, listen, there will not be immediate, complete victory. He says there to them in verse 23, you will drive them out little by little. Literally, the, the language there is one by one, step by step, the idea is. And God says, because if you drove them all out at once, the beasts of all the territories would be overpopulated and they would begin to consume the land and you'd have more problems. So God says to them practically, it's going to happen little by little. Follow the history going forward. That's how it happens. One enemy at a time. One enemy at a time. God could, God could have just given them somehow miraculous, instantaneous success and every enemy just died off. But instead, God says little by little. 
one by one, one enemy at a time. And why would God work in that way? Because this is what happens. As God worked in that way for Israel, they knew who gave them the victory. They knew it was God every time. Because every time it happened again, they're like, wow, that was God. And God did it in such a way that it kept them dependent upon him. If he would have given them instantaneous success, they would have thought, hey, wow, we're pretty awesome, aren't we? Maybe we should go take another continent. But what did God do? God made them stay in a way where every time they had to be dependent upon him again. And he wouldn't even give the victory the same way. He would, he would give a different instruction militarily. And it would happen in a different way. But it kept them dependent upon God. It kept them humble. It kept them grateful. And it kept them just looking to the Lord and reliant upon the Lord, realizing that it was God was the one who was doing it in their lives. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen? That is a perfect picture of exactly what happens in our spiritual lives. As we enter into the life, the promised life of the Spirit, and there are enemies and weaknesses of our flesh that God wants to continue to give us victory over so that we take more territory in the spiritual life. As he drives sinful habits out of our lives. You know, when we first get saved, and when I first got saved, a lot of big things kind of dropped off at once. That was my experience. Well, you, know, you, know, the, the, you know, the cursing, the bad habits, these big things just kind of all drop off. But then there's this continuous process where then, little by little, one by one, this is kind of how it works. The Lord identifies something in your life and he says, you know what? I don't like that. That's an enemy. It's an enemy against me in your life and that's an enemy that's going to destroy you. And so he puts his finger on something, right? And he identifies it and he says, we got to deal with this. And so he begins a process of conviction and repentance and allowing us to realize the power of his Holy Spirit that's available to have victory over it. And one by one, little by little, he then gives us victory over that area, that attitude, that habit, that wrong perspective that maybe we had for a long time. And he says, we've got we to drive this out of your life. And he gives us victory and he conquers it. Well, wow, Lord, it's awesome. You gave me victory over this. And praise the Lord. And this is so, so incredible. And he says, great, great, this is fantastic. And he says, wait, do you see what's on the other side of that hill? And we go, this is an enemy in my life too. And now we're going to deal with this. And see, one by one, the idea is again, victory was certain, but it was progressive. It was gradual. And listen, tonight, let me say to you, don't be discouraged with yourself spiritually. I wish I could tell you you could save and you'd be a spiritual superhero tomorrow. We're all in process. The Bible says that we're being conformed, 2 Corinthians 3, to the image and likeness of Christ. It doesn't say we've been conformed, we've been trans we're being conformed, we're being transformed. It's a process. As little by little, one by one, the Lord identifies thing after thing. And maybe when you got saved, he dropped some big things off and then he had in his God knows all things. He said, okay, now there's about 20 more things. For me, it was probably about 60 more things. This little attitude. Between now and the time he dies, there's about 60 things I need to eradicate out of his life. And he just walks us along and one by one, little by little, the thing for us is this. Be open to the process. And realize this is the continuous process of the Holy Spirit and Jesus in your life where little by little, one by one, he drives things out. Let him do it and be patient with yourself. But know that the Lord is working and accomplishing that and let him have his way in. Let's stand together. Let's pray.